As we continue to worship our awesome God, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Uh, In the pew in front of you, there's a Bible. If you don't have one, feel free to take it. But if you're wondering where Zephaniah is, there's also at the beginning of the Bible a alphabetical table of contents. So you can always look it up in there for you. As you try and find your spot. Zephaniah chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amarah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the adulterous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on roofs to the hosts of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Malcolm, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we just, we praise you for today. We praise you that we can gather together as your people to worship you as we sing these songs, as we give of tithes and offerings, as we open your word together, Lord. We just thank you that we can come and praise you and even witness what you have done in the lives of these four people. I pray, as I reflect upon that, that we'd be a church that continues to walk with them, that this is just the beginning of their walk of maturing in you. Lord, may we be faithful in our call to teach them to obey all that you have commanded. But Lord, I pray that you continue to work in their lives. But also, Lord, as we come to preach, Lord, I pray that you are indeed glorified, that your name is lifted up high. I want to preach so that you are glorified and speak of you and praise your name. So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people and salvation to the lost. Amen. So, Zephaniah. It's good times. <laughs> Zephaniah 1, 1 to 6. I remember I was reading this through today, or this week, um, and I went, wow, this is going to be interesting. But I want you to think about this. What is that one person or that one thing that you really can't live without? You know that thing that when you walk away from it, you feel a little bit of anxious, anxiety? You're kind of like, oh no, what's going on? You know, a lot of us have issues with technology, with phones. That's one thing, right? Even as I was sitting here in the pew, I had my phone down beside me, I picked it up and put it in my pocket. So I could walk up here with my cell phone in my pocket. You know, there's a term for that. There is. I looked it up. 
It's called separation from your cell phone. The term which is called as nomophobia is used to describe the feeling of panic or stress some people experience when they're unable to access or use their mobile phone. I kid you not. This is a thing. I remember years ago watching an Anderson Cooper special studying the anxiety that people feel when they're separated from phone. Not even separated, that they can't look at the notifications, the dinging noise. And on that note, if you have a cell phone, please put it on mute. (laughs) But... There's an anxiety that comes up, and it doesn't matter if it's a cell phone, doesn't matter if it's a person or any other sort of thing. You know, I think there's always something in our lives that we feel a little anxious about when we're separated from them. So the issue that we see coming up here in Zephaniah, that we see addressed throughout the whole Bible, if you haven't caught on yet, it's a matter of worship and what is being worshipped. It's... It's that thing that you're trusting in, that you're putting your hope in, that thing that you're resting in. If you remember the testimonies that we heard, many of them were putting trust or rest into something else other than God. And God's process of breaking them to see that they can't put their trust or their faith in anything else but Him alone. He is the only one that promises peace that goes beyond all understanding. So we see in this part that God is holy and that because he is holy, it demands that he confronts all the failure to acknowledge him. And that's what we see here, especially in this first point. We see what is the response to sin in these first four verses. It's absolutely amazing. See, in this passage, in this, Zephaniah is written, uh, usually, uh, we think it's written about the time of Josiah, as the top says, but right before Josiah does his reformation of the kingdom of Judah. Before Josiah, God uses Josiah to come in and clean the house. Well, quite literally, actually, he cleans the house of God, but also clean the house of the nation. God used Judah, uh, God uses Josiah in an amazing way to, to reform his people. But this is kind of before that. And, and we see God's response to, to sin that is coming out here. And it is amazing because at this moment, you have no idea why God is so mad. He's just mad. He comes out in verse 2 I will utterly sweep away everything. Everything. Every one, every beast, every animal, everything. And as you read this through, you see the image of the flood coming to reality as God wipes out everything on the planet. God's response to, to sin that has, uh, has, has come into the earth and God wipes it out. From the face of the earth, he says, declares the Lord. The scope of this judgment is everything, and there's going to be this sort of decreation type judgment. If you, if you look at the process that is coming out here, it's, it's the opposite order of what God has created everything. He's going to wipe out everything. And over and over again, we see this declares the Lord. See, Zephaniah is telling of the certainty of the judgment that is about to happen. The one who created the world could reverse the process by wiping out everything. He was going to make it clean. So we often ask ourselves, what is God's response to sin? 
Well, Zephaniah 1 to 4 gives you a pretty decent picture of what that is. And he says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand. You know, as I was doing some devotional time this, this week in, in First Kings, in, in King Solomon's prayer of the coronation of the temple of God, he uses a similar language about how God stretched out his hand to bring his people out of Egypt. The same hand, that all-powerful hand that brings his people out of slavery into Egypt will be the same hand that God uses to wipe out everything that is going on. How he stretches out his hand. This is the power of God that he unleashes against any sort of antagonists. Anyone who, who is coming to reject who he is. You see, and as I was reflecting upon this, I think it's very easy for myself, because I'm a pretty good guy, I think. You know, I, I have some hiccups, but I'm a pretty good guy. And as you were reading and heard about, there's a lot of good people. But there's something that comes out here is that it's easy to think that God's judgment won't reach me. That the sin that I sin isn't that serious. But that's not God's reaction here. God's reaction is a serious reaction to all sin. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a white lie. It's a lie. You know, in God's eyes, there's no such thing as, well, I'm just looking, I'm not touching. There's no such thing as that quiet sin called pride and it not being as important. Pride is what got us into this mess to begin with, with Adam and Eve. You know, there's, there's no such thing as a not serious sin to a holy God. It's a deadly virus that affects everything it touches. It, it permeates like a, like, a, like, a, like a poison. It goes and destroys everything. There's nothing, if it touches something, it, it is destroyed. There's nothing that it touches that isn't destroyed. But these things are all just evidence in our world of how desperate we are in need of being saved. See, at this point in this prophecy, Zephaniah had not made any accusations of something wrong being done. So you could just imagine the people of God, Judah, reading this and going, what did we do wrong? Right? It's like when you start yelling at your children and their response is, what did I do? What do you mean, what did you do? You can kind of picture the same thing with the people of God. God just comes and he says, I'm going to utterly wipe away everything. Nothing is going to stand. Nothing is going to be there. What have these people done to deserve such a thing like this? And that's why we get into verses 4, the end of 4, the second half of verse 4 to verse 6. Why is the response so serious? We see a breakdown of a few groups of people that come out here. You see this, I will cut off from this place the remnants of Baal. Cut off means they will cease to exist. I will cut them off. Baal called into question the very nature of God by diluting the power of God and by giving worship and praise to another. See, I think as we reflect upon this is that we don't have, and I struggle with this, I struggle with this, is that we, I don't have, I often forget how holy God is. 
Because if I truly understood the holiness of God, I would truly understand how bad my sin is. I'm a good person. I grew up in the church. I didn't have any rebellious things. I don't know. You can ask my parents. They're here. But I was a good person. But I was in desperate need of something. I still diluted the power of God by giving worship and praise to another thing. Baal was this false Canaanite god who was over the storm and the fertility. So he was the god who would cause the waters to come in, the rain to come in off of the Mediterranean, and he was the god who would cause everything to grow. Do you see why this is bad? God is the god of provision. He provides all things. And here the people of God are coming along and saying, no, we're going to worship Baal. So he was the God that brought all of these things and allowed the seed to grow. They were trusting in a, a counterfeit God, and that was an evil, evil thing because God is holy. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, pastor, we don't have any bales. And I'd say, yeah, you're kind of right, but... I would say Baal worship has its modern modern reincarnation. Think about it. Baal was another name for the gross national product. And wherever people see bank balances, prosperity, and sound economy, productivity, and mounting exports as essence of their security, Baal is still worshipped. It's still there. And even though this book is old, it is, very, it is always applicable to what we are going through today. And you can hear it, right? As the markets begin to crash a little bit, as you start losing your investments a little bit, what do you feel? A little bit of anxiety starts to rise, doesn't it? You begin to doubt. You don't trust in the one who provides all things. And that's what the people of God were doing here. And they come along and God says, the adulterous priests along with the priests. See, the Hebrew ties these two groups together, Baal and the priests. Priests were supposed to teach God's law. They were to guard knowledge and preserve what was holy, but they were corrupt too. And he will, God will utterly cut them off. You know, in our church here, one of the main questions we always ask is, what does the Bible say? Because they didn't. The priests began to compromise. You know, it's important for the leadership of the church to be able to answer that question, what does the Bible say? And to build their foundation upon those things. And as he continues on, in verse 5, those who bow down, this is, this, is a, this is this idea of, of syncretism. This is this mixing things up in verse 5 here, the end of verse 5. They were making promises to God by claiming the power of a false god. So they were literally praying to Yahweh, the God, the, the, the God who provides all things, and they were saying, but I will do this through the power of this false god. God, I will do what you tell me to do, but I will do it through the power of of that God. Hey, God, I promise I'll do this for you. I promise that I'll be obedient to you, but I need to make sure that I get enough money. Or, God, I'll, I'll do that for you like you asked when, you know, I get healthy enough. 
hey God, I'll do, but please give me. So the question is, is God enough? Is Jesus enough? Is there anything impossible for our God? The same God who brought out the people of God out of slavery in Egypt is the same God we worship today. The same God who, who, who did the impossible by the virgin becoming pregnant is the same God we worship today. Is there anything that he has told you to do that he has not already told you he will equip you to do? You know, some of us get so... The Great Commission is this perfect picture of this. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we get stuck on that and we go, oh no, I'm freaking out. I gotta go talk to someone? Yes, you do. But then he has that great statement at the end, for I will be with you. There's nothing that God tells us to do that he doesn't also equip us to do at the same time. And as, as, as God begins to pour out judgment, he comes out to this next group of, and he says, who do not seek the Lord? This is, a, this is practical atheism. I had a friend of mine who, who, who always talked about this. <laughs> this is a claim that you love God with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, but never go to him. It's the, the example of this, we were talking about this in our prayer meeting on Wednesday. The example of this is, is kind of like, hey God, will you please help me get through this situation? And then you go try to fix it on your own strength. It's a practical atheism. Many people profess to believe in God, but, but live as atheists. What pastor? I'm not that either. So let me ask you this in a different way. What are you resting in today? What was the last time, when was the last time you prayed that God would do something and then you go out and you try to accomplish those things in your own strength? We ever wonder why we're so tired all the time? I think about that all the time. Why am I so tired? But we've got to ask ourselves this. What do we mean by God is holy? See, God is unlike any other. We see this in Hosea 11.9. And his holiness is the essence of that otherness. His very being is completely absent of even a trace of sin. He is high above any other, and no one can compare to him. God's holiness pervades his entire being and shapes all his attributes. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy love. His anger and wrath are a holy anger and wrath. These concepts are hard for us to understand. Just as God is difficult for us to even understand him in entirety. So when I come to understand God's holiness more, I come to a greater understanding of what God has saved me from. If I take sin lightly, it's because I take God's holiness lightly, and that is a problem. God is holy. John Piper describes it like this. God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is and who by grace made himself accessible to you and to me. His infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is. What are you valuing in? We turn from giving the God what is due 
when we begin to look to something other than him as our ultimate provider, protector, and treasure. This is what idolatry is. It creates competing sovereigns and saviors and satisfactions for, for from and through and to the Lord all things are due, though. See, Zephaniah points to the truth that we as humans quickly prize people or positions, power or possessions more than God. How quickly are we to fear that our fear of others trumps our fear of God? That's what Zephaniah is talking about. What do you fear? How quickly pluralism becomes the norm, right? I was looking this over and I'm like, this is me, all of it. The constant theme throughout the Bible is that people worship created things as if they were the creator. Over and over and over And look around in this world. Look at the Bible. Worship is unavoidable. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you don't believe Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. You worship something. You all do. So the issue is is that worship is unavoidable. The only question is, is what will you worship? So what? Two things. First, Take seriously the warnings of God's coming judgments. This isn't a joke. There's no such thing as a little white lie. All sin will be judged. Stop minimizing it. So the question I have is, how can a message like this one square up with the Christian gospel that we spend so much time singing about and reading about and proclaiming? Should not the church be less judgmental and more affirming? How can we understand the message of Zephaniah in this modern, quote, time? Simply, God calls us to faith and to obedience. Our lives must square with the Christian gospel at the point of obedience and faith, as well as the point of affirming sinners and pointing them to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Baptism is a picture of, of, what, of an eternal change. God has saved them. The Holy Spirit is regenerating them. They are a new creation. And that's what that is a picture of as they get dunked into the water and they come back out. It is an image of the old gone and the new coming. But it is also a step of obedience. It is a simple faith of trust. Do you think those people like standing in front of people? I've heard all sorts of excuses about not getting baptism, from wrecking their hair to something else. And I simply just say, okay, and I walk away. Because God calls us to faithful obedience. And you will do that. I think there's also a misunderstanding of God's holiness. Our sin is only as bad as we view God as holy. Our attitude to sin in our own lives. Right now, I I want us to to focus on us, okay? This isn't about focusing on so-and-so not sitting next to me and going, well, that person's got some issues to work through. The point is to focus on yourself right now. 
What is my attitude to the sin that I have? Does it break me when I do that? Because it shows that I don't value my Lord and my Savior. That's what they all do. Every sin does that. But as I look to this, when we, in, in short, God's holiness is seeing him as infinitely value. And when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, when we repent and believe, we are making the statement that he is enough. If I were to lose everything today, can I still say that Christ is enough? I look at all of this, and I'm hugely confronted with the fact that I am guilty of it all. I have chosen to worship other things. I have put my trust in lesser things. I have worshipped the creation over the creator. And because of that, I am deserving of all that God says here. Because I have sinned against him. I am deserving of all those things. So I'm crushed under that weight. But there's an amazing word that's but. J.C. Ryle tells a story like this. Man, said a thoughtless, ungodly English traveler to a First Nations convert. Man, what is the reason that you make so much of Christ and talk so much about him? And what has this Christ done for you that you should make so much about him? The converted First Nations man did not answer him in words. He gathered together some dry leaves and moss and made a ring with them on the ground. He picked up a live worm and put it in the middle of the ring. He struck a light and set the moss and the leaves on fire. The flame soon rose and the heat scorched the worm, so withered in agony, and after trying in vain to escape on every side, he curled itself up in the middle as if about to die in despair. At that moment, the First Nations man reached forth his hand and took up the worm gently and placed it on his bosom. Stranger, he said to the Englishman, do you see that worm? I was that perishing creature. I was dying in my sins, hopeless and helpless and on the brink of eternal life, or eternal fire. It was Jesus Christ who put forth the arm of his power. It was Jesus Christ who delivered me from the hand of his grace and plucked me from everlasting burnings. It was Jesus Christ who placed me a poor, sinful worm near the heart of his love. Stranger, that is the reason why I talk of Jesus Christ and make much of him. I am not ashamed of it because I love him. So what is the so what? It's rooted in the fact that we're all guilty. We're all guilty of worshiping lesser things. But Jesus made it possible that anyone who repents of their sins and believes in what Jesus has done for us, that he died for our sins and he rose again and ascended to heaven, will have life. The second thing is this, run away from serving two masters and follow the Lord on the only path that leads to life. 
See, Zephaniah points to the big truth that we are so quick to prize people and possessions, power or possessions more than God. How quickly does our fear of others trump our fear of God? Because the big point, the big idea is this. God will judge all sin. But through Jesus, you will taste the joy of full salvation. So the question is this. What do you worship? Judah viewed other things as more valuable than God. And God judges them for that. What are you worshiping? What do you trust in? What are you resting in? The one who conquered death, who has shown his faithfulness and has offered you grace, or the thing that literally falls apart when you die? God will judge all sin. But through Jesus, you will taste the joy of full salvation. So we turn from giving the Lord, we turn to give the Lord what is due. That he is the ultimate provider, protector, the treasure. You know, idolatry creates a competing sovereigns in that area. But Zephaniah wants us to see how good our God is and what he is worthy of. Apart from Jesus, we cannot seek or inquire of the Father. And the only path of Christ, we will find life and life to the fullness. God will judge all sin. I want you to hear that. But I also want to hear the other half of the gospel. Jesus Christ has died for your sins. And he rose again on the third day. He ascended to heaven. And he will one day return. For those who are in Christ, that is a great sense of hope. For those who are not in Christ, that's just judgment. Don't waste your time. If you have any questions about what the good news of Jesus Christ is, I encourage you to talk to someone today. God will judge all sin, but through Jesus you will taste the joy of full salvation. Let's pray. Father God, I just praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you that we are a people saved by your amazing, amazing grace. Lord, may we rest in what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. That he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he grew up, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he died and rose again, so that anyone who rests in what Christ has done will have life. Lord, may you be glorified and honored. And amen.